Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. And Andy says here, but he's down in warm Florida, and I'm up in not-so-warm New Haven. True, and we're both uh, living in various uh, circles of dental hell these days. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as, as at, the end of, at, the, at the end of this taping, I get to go across uh, the street uh, and get root canal therapy. Yes, and at the end of my Florida trip, I get to go and get root canal therapy for the tooth that I cracked. So, uh, <laughs> which is one reason why I'm, you're not going to see me smiling if we have a Zoom clip here. I don't want to scare the audience. <laughs> okay. So, and Andy, the culprit, truthfully, for both of us, one word, candy. Well, I'm not going to go into all the details, but just word to the wise. Mm -hmm, indeed. Okay, so we've got a lot to cover this week. It's uh, it's kind of a potpourri that's been hoisted upon us by events. Um, some of it is uh, continued from previous episodes, and let's start with that. Um, we've been talking about the, the possibility that the court might uh, sort of back away from deciding on Moore versus Harper because of developments in North Carolina. And you've been speaking out against that possibility, you know, against that as being the right course of action um, because of your feeling on mootness. I've been, I've actually just said, I don't think the case is moot. I don't have a strong position on whether the court chooses to dismiss the case as improvidently granted, the, the writ of certiorari is improvidently granted. I, I'm not a big fan of mootness as such. The interesting thing is that the court has now asked for the parties to brief the court, file some briefs within a couple of weeks on the question of whether recent developments in North Carolina a change in any way the, the procedural posture of the case, and, and they are inviting the parties to advise the court on how it should proceed. Our audience will remember, Andy, you'll remember that in the brief that Vic and Steve Calabresi and I put together, we gave the court an off-ramp at, at the end of our amicus brief. We said, if you want to punt on all the issues, here's one thing you can do. You can send it back to North Carolina, the North Carolina Sup State Supreme Court. We said you could send it back so that the North Carolina State Supreme Court could focus on a particular issue. Did the state legislature implicitly authorize the state Supreme Court to factor in the state constitution into the analysis? But that off-ramp is a variant, and, and that was that was in our brief, that off-ramp is a variant of the disposition that, that could be achieved by simply dismissing the writ as improvidently granted. That would have the functional consequence of sending the case back, in effect, to North Carolina, and, and the state court is, is going to be weighing in, in in various ways. So the result would be pretty similar. What's interesting to me will be interesting to watch, and of course, when it happens, uh, our audience will be the, the first to know, is are the petitioners in the case, after the briefing and oral argument where they got beaten up but good, are they going to actually want to basically avoid a disposition on the merits? Are they going to ask the court to actually drop the case? That will be the interesting thing to watch because remember the disposition at the current nanosecond is one that basically favored the uh, Amar position, the Amarca's constitution a position, the Calabresi position, that state constitutions do play a role and the state Supreme Court can interpret those state constitutions. That's what the lower court permitted 
the state legislature initiated the lawsuit in the Supreme Court, trying to get the U.S. Supreme Court to undo that, to reverse that. Um, then there were briefing, and they, oh, they um, uh, took it on the chin, I think. And then there was oral argument, and they took it on the chin again. And so the interesting question is, are they going to actually cry uncle and say, let's um, or t- take the draw, never mind, like Emily Latella, let's just call the whole thing off. But is it actually a draw if that happens? In other words, if it if if they if they do say okay, um, you know we want to hear from the North Carolina Supreme Court, or we want or you guys decide this, is that a, a move that actually favors uh, ISL or is opposed to ISL or has nothing to do with ISL? Well, the Supreme Court would then not tell would not weigh in. You and I, Andy, in our last episode where we talked about Roe versus Wade, talked about the public interest in having a clear ruling on certain things going forward. That was true for doctors who wanted to perform abortions and women who wanted to get abortions uh, way back in the days of, of Roe versus Wade. That's what we talked about in the last episode. Today, there is a general interest in knowing very clearly what the rules are going to be for 2024, not just in North Carolina, but Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and other states that possibly are apt to be close. And there's a very interesting state court election for the swing seat in the Supreme Court of Wisconsin going on right now. Mm -hmm. Um, The primaries were held, Mm -hmm. and I'm not an expert on this, but according to the newspapers that I've read, a rather extreme Republican who had been tossed off the court previously uh, emerged as one of the, the two finalists. And a Democrat who seems to have the Democratic Party uh, more consolidated be- behind her. And in this um, early primary, the Democratic candidate got a, a lot of votes, um, a lot more than the Republican one. Those are the, the top two. And the Republican one has already lost uh, once before in a statewide judicial election contest. So we will see. Stay tuned. And that's for the swing seat on what could well be the swing uh, swing seat on the state Supreme Court of what could be the, the swing state. If you are a fan of Nate Silver's uh, 538, I am. He uh, has this thing called the snake. And, and the snake is basically just um, a continuum from the most democratic state to the most Republican state. I, I could have reversed that. You could start left to right, right to left, either way. And the midpoint of the snake is, and the states are divided to repeat just by increasing or blueness or decreasing blueness. The key is which state actually covers the median electoral college vote, 270 out of 538. And that's the swing state. As that state goes, so goes the nation, because all the states on one side are more red, all the states on the other side are more blue. In the last election, that state was Wisconsin. Wisconsin was the state that that, um, Biden needed to win to put him over the top that that he carried by the, the smallest percentage. The skew today of the Electoral College is conveniently measured. There are various metrics, but one metric is just comparing each party's national popular vote to their margin in that swing state 
in the snake. Biden wins nationally by three points or so, three percentage points, but he won Wisconsin by maybe three and a half percentage points. Maybe it was four percentage points, but he won Wisconsin only by one percentage point. So that's a three-point skew today in favor of um, the Republicans. The key state, Wisconsin, to repeat, is three points more red than the nation as a whole. So, and that's Right now, there's a state Supreme Court election in Wisconsin, and the argument for the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, um, to hear this case is it's not just about North Carolina. It's about the larger ISL issue, and let's have these issues decided before the election rather than after Bush v. Gore style. So, yes, I understand. So a couple of things. First of all, I understand what you're saying about the snake, but I don't want our audience to be under the impression that if Biden had lost Wisconsin, he would have lost the election. That's not what it means. Um, it, it's, it's only that if all the states move together, then if he had lost Wisconsin, he would sure. have lost the election. And of course, we know that all the states don't move he, together. He, he, but, he, but he did win some other states that were not necessary to his victory, but in there, his margin of victory was even smaller mm -hmm. than Right, um, uh, Wisconsin's or the other things were going on. So, for example, he wins in Arizona, he wins in Georgia, but he could have lost those and still won two seventy. His margin of victory was actually lower in Georgia and Arizona, but he didn't need those. But if he had lost those, so if there had been a one a, a, a one point general swing distributed evenly across America right. against Biden, he would have lost Georgia, okay, but he didn't need it. He would have lost Arizona, okay, but he didn't need it. But if that one point had caused him to lose uh, Wisconsin, which is where he had the fattest margin, oh, he would have lost that, and that would have been the tipping point, and it would be President Trump again. Right, and that's what I meant when I said that the states, if the states move together, which, in fact, they probably right. don't. But they're, they're, they do to some degree, of course. Yeah, so okay. it's just, that's yeah. why there are many ways of measuring, you know, um, the skew of the Electoral College. This is one relatively simple way. It's important for Biden that he won places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, but he won those by bigger margins than he won Wisconsin. Right. So before we leave um, Moore versus Harper completely, let me just see if I, if I can lay this out for our audience uh, and for myself. You can bounce it off you. So um, in North Carolina, the state legislature came up with a map, and a, a districting map. And there were they were sued, and the state Supreme Court said, no, that map violates the state constitution. Um, so therefore, you have to do something else. And then eventually the state legislature, I mean, this went through a few iterations, but eventually the state legislature in some form sued essentially the court to say, you didn't do this right. Um, and be because you, the idea of this case is you shouldn't even be hearing this, right? right. This is now, if instead what happens is the, the Supreme Court sends it back to North Carolina and the North Carolina Supreme Court hears it, but just says, well, actually, we think the state legislature did, did a, a reasonable map that didn't violate the state constitution. It seems to me that that still is, an incons is inconsistent with ISL because they shouldn't even be hearing it under ISL. So if the Supreme Court is sending this back to the, 
to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Isn't that, in some sense, a refutation of ISL? Well, there are these different flavors of ISL. So one flavor is that what the state Supreme Court in North Carolina did was wrong because they actually imposed their own map. They mm -hmm. could have rejected right. an infinite number of proposals from the state legislature, but they had no right to pick their own alternative. So that's that's one relatively modest version of ISL. And if it's only that, and the new state Supreme Court isn't going to do that, you say, well, that's total. But but the strong version is this is of ISL is this is up to the state legislature. The state legislature exists autonomously and independently of the state constitution. And the state constitution basically has nothing or almost nothing that it can permissibly uh, say to the state legislature to constrain um, the state legislature under the robust theory, and that the state Supreme Court has almost no role or no role in indeed. And that's where, Andy, we got into procedural restrictions mm -hmm. versus substantive and all the rest. And, and so that's why it will be, I thought what the petitioners were actually arguing for was gobbledygook. And so did several justices saying the lines you're proposing don't make much sense. So it will be very interesting to see what the legislature, what the petitioners do now with this, you know, possible lifeline, this new change of circumstances. Are yeah. they just going to are they just going to say because they know they're going to get whooped on the merits or they think they're going to get whooped, say, we want you just to drop the case. That will be interesting. It won't. It's not just interesting what the Supreme Court will do. It's not just interesting what the other parties will recommend because they won below. You see, it's interesting what the state legislature, what the petitioners are going to do in response. That's to me what will be particularly fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, if the court sends it back. It's, it's unfortunate because, like you said, we want this to be settled in advance of the 2024 election. And if, and indeed, if the only reason, that, and we'll never know, but if the only reason they send it back is because certain members of the court think they're going to lose, yeah. you know, then that would be also be on. Now, we talked about that in our last episode, you know, but, but uh, in another context. Anyway. But way back when, when uh, before this case had ever, uh, certiorari had ever been granted, Vic and I wrote a piece. Steve wasn't involved back then in the Supreme Court Review, which is a faculty edited journal out of the University of Chicago. And we actually dropped a footnote saying, we think actually that the court should hear this issue and that we are in agreement with con conservatives like Neil Gorsuch and uh, Samuel Alito, who way back when wanted the court to hear an issue in another case. And we say, we actually agree the court should hear this issue. On the merits, we think the court should uphold a broad power of state constitutions and state Supreme Courts to have a role. But we think the court should hear the issue and hear the issue ideally before the next presidential election. That was our position long ago. We haven't changed our stripes on that. But we also, in the brief that we wrote, Vic and I and Steve Calabresi, with you reading 20 different drafts, gave the court an off-ramp. We said, if you want to resolve the case without reaching ISL, there is a legally principled and proper way for you to do that. It's to send it back to the North Carolina Supreme Court for more careful analysis of one particular line of argument. Namely, that the state legislature itself has chosen to make the state constitution applicable, so that even if the state constitution did not 
automatically apply. In North Carolina, it applies, we think, because the North Carolina legislature wanted it to apply. I mean, it brings up an interesting question about when the court should hear certain doctrines because or cases on certain doctrines or certain you know, theories. Because if I had said to you in 2005, oh, I think the court should hear a case about what Rehnquist wrote in the concurrence of Bush versus Gore, you would have said, are you kidding me? You know, no one will talk about this. They won't touch it. They won't. It's everyone thinks it's ridiculous and we should just let it be sit and be dead. Um, but now you want them to hear it because it seems like it, it has, you know, some embers that are burning and they need to be put out. Oh, I, I don't think I would have said that back in 2005 because I think um, error should be stamped out, should be condemned as egregious, and I've never underestimated the influence of, in particular, anything that William Rehnquist said. He has well, a lot it was of a followers. concurrence, of course. Mm -hmm. so when you yeah, say I understand, but mm -hmm. they're, 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 I was going to FedSoc events where people were saying mm -hmm. that's the principled argument. My friend Michael McConnell said that um, um, in print. Um, uh, and uh, uh, my, uh, uh, R Professor Richard Epstein said that. Will Bode may still believe um, uh, uh, that, or at least there was a time when he did so. So in 2005, no, I was still actually ranting and raving and saying, this is wrong, and we should um, have a, a, a very clear, forceful statement that it's wrong. Now, um, you're right, I didn't believe it was going to be re resurrected, um, but um, don't underestimate the ability of of bad arguments to come back unless we drive a stake through their heart absolutely no i've seen too many halloween movies and uh and nightmare on elm street and all the rest freddy krueger and jason they keep coming back okay so again enough on this i think so vice president pence is back in the news um he received a subpoena by the special counsel jack smith um who's overseeing a number of uh, investigations of former President Trump uh, to compel his testimony before a grand jury. And he has said that he will fight this subpoena. And he, so what is your immediate reaction to his uh, notion that he's going to fight the subpoena? One thing our audience may wish to consult is a very interesting op-ed by a personal friend and a friend of this podcast, former Judge Mike Ludig, L-U-T-T-I-G, a preeminent conservative jurist, no longer on the bench. And a year down in South Florida, uh, as we speak, I was there last week, actually, with Judge Ludig and his spouse at an event sponsored by the National Constitution Center. And during the event, an interesting op-ed under Judge Ludig's signature appeared, on this very question, and we'll put it up on the show notes. You say, so, well, okay, fine, a, federal, a former federal judge weighs in. What's the big deal? The big deal is that Mike Ludig has a particular relationship, a very special relationship, to Mike Pence. Ludig was the scholar and distinguished lawyer whom Pence and his staff reached out to in January 2021. Pence reached out to Ludig to advise him on how he should respond to Trump's pressure to try to stop the certification. And Ludig advised him that this would be utterly inappropriate to try to stop 
the certification. And Ludwig actually, I think, wrote something up to this effect that was published in major media outlets. And Pence referred to Ludwig's advice, Ludwig by name, in defending his proper conduct on January 6th, where he, he, he did not follow President Trump's directive to, to, to stop the certification. That's an interesting backstory because Ludig is, to repeat, in effect, Pence's constitutional advisor of choice on this very issue. And to repeat, Ludig was mentioned by name and repeatedly by Pence as his constitutional poll star. And now Ludig actually has a piece in the New York Times saying that he doesn't think that Pence has much of a leg to stand on in objecting to this subpoena. And he's also making some observations about how the timing of this will be awkward because Ludig is predicting federal courts will smack down this Pence set of arguments and do so pretty quickly and pretty emphatically, Judge Ludig uh, former Judge Ludig is is predicting, and and that would actually be somewhat awkward as Pence uh, gets on the campaign trail to have this smackdown. So we'll put that on the website for people to read, and um, I'm happy to analyze the two sets of issues as I see them. Right. So you know, it seems to me that uh, it's it's a little complicated because um, we have to we have to ask ourselves, you know, why uh, what is it that the special counsel is going to be asking him about. Um, and, of course, he, he may not say, you know, ahead of time, right? Um, and Pence is saying that, well, you know, there's two things that that people might object to his subpoena uh, because of. And one of them is the notion of executive privilege, that Trump is consulting with Pence ahead of, the, of his actions and telling him what to do, or, or you know, having a discussion about it, and um, and that he might try to invoke executive privilege. And the other is the question of the speech and debate clause, which has to do with what members of Congress say on the on the floor of the House and Senate. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, like where the clause comes from, and what uh, kind of the originalism of the of that clause is. Now Pence has been quoted as saying that he is not going to fight the subpoena on the basis of executive privilege. Um, he said, here's what he said, a quote from him. He says, um, regarding executive privilege, that's not my fight. My fight is on the separation of powers. Now, I'm not sure exactly where separation of powers comes in with uh, the speech and debate clause, but, uh, but I think that's what he means. Um, is, is, but at any rate... So, you know, you can enlighten us on all this stuff, but my layman's approach to it is that part of what we're wondering here, where the special counsel is, did Donald Trump commit any crimes um, having to do with the January 6th uh, insurrection or whatever it winds up being termed as. Um, and, you know, in that case, you know, Pence's... Uh, relationship with Trump is probably a little bit different. Like, for example, in like the Nixon tapes case, you know, Nixon had to turn over the, the tapes, notwithstanding questions of executive privilege, because there were questions as to what whether crimes were being committed here. So that's that's one thing. And on the speech and debate clause, I tend to maybe be with Pence a little bit, because 
although one could argue that he's not a member of Congress, you know, and so therefore it doesn't cover him. Uh, I think that the intent is probably, you know, has to do with speech that takes place on the floor of the House and Senate that is consistent with constitutional actions, you know. So anyway, your take on it, please. So there are two issues that you've identified, the speech and debate clause issue and the executive privilege issue. And even if you had a very, very propense view of both of those issues, I don't think, even if you did, and I'll go through the reasons to be skeptical on each one, but even if you did, I don't think that would mean that Pence just doesn't even have to appear before the grand jury. It would mean that he has to appear and he would maybe have a legitimate basis for objecting to this question or that one. Now, on speech or debate clause, we start with the text. Article 1, Section 6. Senators and representatives, dot, 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 for any speech and de or debate in either house shall not be questioned in any other place. Any other place meaning like a court of law. So senators and representatives shall not be... Qu uh, I'm just going to reword the, the sentence a little bit just because um, there, there, there are lots of other words in between, so just to make it sound a little more grammatical and less Yoda speak. Senators and representatives shall not be questioned in any other place for any speech or debate in either house. Okay? Um, I, I reworded it. I rearranged the words, but, but okay. So now... You, you identified, you know, one set of issues. He's not, strictly speaking, a senator. He's not, strictly speaking, a representative. Also, is he really being questioned about his speech? He, now, but on the other side, he is the vice president of the United States presiding over a joint session of the, the House and Senate, a joint session of both houses. So maybe functionally, for this one purpose, even though he's not strictly, literally a senator representative, we could see the spirit of this provision encompassing him. So that's one debate. Now here's a second debate. Is he being questioned about what he said in these uh, on January 6th or something else? Because if he's not being questioned about what a speech or debate that he actually made, if, if he's being questioned about how he wielded the gavel, his, his mere presiding, it, is that speech or debate? And you can say, well, you know, come on, don't be so technical. It's about protecting the independence and autonomy of Capitol Hill proceedings, which shouldn't be intruded upon too much outside that, in some other place. It's, it's about, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Almost a literal, formal, geographic separation of spaces, separation of houses, so to speak. We have the White House um, at one end of Pennsylvania Avenue and, Cap and the Capitol building in a different spot. And oh, the Supreme Court nowadays has its own building. It's a, it's a separate space. And, and each space should be sensitive to the autonomy of the other spaces. That seems a little weird to put it that way. But in fact, at the founding, people thought about it that way. Was George Washington going to walk over to the Senate building to get their advice and consent on possible treaty instructions? Or were they going to come to his place? Or were they going to meet on neutral 
third ground, very, very famous episodes occurred in English history where an English monarch actually tried to breach the chamber of the, the House of Commons. And this actually precipitated the, the English Civil War. And Charles I is going to lose his head as a result of an episode that began when he tried to storm into the Commons chambers uninvited. It's part of the, the etiquette and the um, aesthetics of a State of the Union addressing the present, you know, formally, the way the etiquette works, has to be invited to enter the Capitol building. And, and, and with great fanfare, you know, Mr. Speaker, you know, the President of the United States, okay? Because he's not supposed to go there uninvited. That, that's at least an informal American understanding that kind of goes back to Charles I. Washington did visit Congress, the Senate in person. It didn't work out so well because they dilly-dallied and shilly-shallied. And at the end of this set of interactions, he walked out muttering, it is said under his breath, that he'd be damned if he ever went back. And he never did go back to that place. States of the Union from Thomas Jefferson all the way to until um, Woodrow Wilson were delivered in writing. Washington and John Adams appeared in person, but by invitation, uh, Woodrow Wilson resumed that practice. Okay, you could be literalistic and say he has no leg to stand on because he's not a senator, he's not a representative. You know, what they're asking about is not any speech or debate he made, but other things that he did. But more broadly, you could say, ah, there should be some institutional autonomy here, okay? But in fact, what we, I'm guessing, what they really want to most ask him about is not what happened that day in that building, but what happened in another building, you know, on another day, on a series of days, when Donald Trump again and again and again pressured him to do the wrong thing when he was the presiding officer on, on January 6th. And if that's what they want to question him about, I don't think speech or debate clause gives him much of a leg to stand on. He could rely on executive privilege, and let me turn to that in just a minute and try to identify where it comes from and what it's all about. But Andy, I did not, but before I do that, I am aware that I didn't fully answer your question about the deep purpose behind the speech or debate clause. And so maybe, you know, I can talk about that for a little bit. But also, if you have any other questions, you know, why don't you ask them now, and then we'll just finish our primer on speech and debate immunity. Well, I, I also was wondering whether the speech and debate clause might cover speech that's in preparation for speech and debate. Like if you, you know, if you meet with your staff um, to discuss what it is you're going to say um, on the floor, is that covered by the speech and debate clause or something like that? Or if you meet with, with another senator in the, uh, you know, in, in the, the room outside the speech and debate. The, clo the cloak room. Yeah. Yes, the right. cloak room. Would, would, that the be, you know, would that be covered? And, you know, are there Supreme Court cases on this? And, you know, or as well as what do you think? One important case is a case that I teach unedited every semester. It's a case called Powell versus McCormick. And that's a suit against the Speaker of the House by name, EO nomine as they say in Latin. They just generate all sorts of Latin, law schools do, lawyers do, um, so that you'll think um, lawyers are, are impressive and you have to pay them a lot of money um, just by, because they give, and I think doctors do this too sometimes. Powell versus McCormick was Adam Clayton Powell against the Speaker of the House, John McCormick. And it was about whether Powell could be tossed out. 
today, this would be literally today, George Santos against Kevin McCarthy. That would be, you know, comparable thing. Because in fact, another thing happened this week, Andy, the House announced an ethics probe into George Santos, which could lead to his um, ultimate ouster, his expulsion. Now, Powell was kept from being in the House. Technically, it was an exclusion and not expulsion. And that's really important. It was the last great opinion Earl Warren ever handed down. This one, his last week on the court, he handed out two important opinions that week, another about voting rights. So it's his last week on the court. It's a very famous case. And one of the issues is, can Powell sue the sitting speaker uh, of the House, John McCormick? And the answer is no, he can't because of the speech and debate clause, which was read expansively saying, John McCormick has better things to do than to have to go over and defend himself in court outside of the Capitol building for stuff that he was doing inside the Capitol building, central to his role as Speaker of the House. So that was a broad understanding of speech and debate, you know, above and beyond any technical words that he may have uttered, speech or debate. It was a sense of broad institutional autonomy. And the court in Powell versus McCormick gave us a bit of an exposition about why we have the speech and debate clause. I love Powell versus McCormick as an opinion because it is a great originalist opinion. So when people tell you, oh, the Warren court was not an originalist court, damn it, read Powell versus McCormick. It reads like a John Marshall opinion on every issue, including speech and debate clause uh, immunity. Hugo Black is on the court. I think the driving intellectual force of the Warren court, taking us back to our Hugo Black episodes. And that opinion is all about text history and structure. And it's not literalistic because, to repeat, John McCormick is dismissed from the case, even though technically it wasn't just about speech and debate, but about other things that, the, that the, um, had been done to Adam Clayton Powell. What's the big idea behind speech and debate? The court talks about it a bit. I can talk about it a bit. One idea, this goes all the way back again to England. Indeed, it's central because Parliament from the French Parlay is a place where people speak. The very phrase freedom of speech originally comes from English parliamentary immunity. Parliament is a place for freedom of speech and debate in the, the legislative assembly. So now it's a certain kind of speech. It's not commercial advertising. It's not selling cut-rate beer. And I'm picking that because the U.S. Supreme Court more recently decided a case called 44 Liquor Mart. No, that's not the kind of speech they were talking about. They were talking about political discourse. And Parliament, it was a special speech spot, a parley place, a place for a certain kind of discourse. It's where actually political discourse occurred. And the core idea of parliamentary uh, speech and debate immunity is no one can, can sue any member of parliament for anything said in parliament. You can criticize the monarch. You can criticize government officials. You can criticize private persons who you think are misbehaving in various ways that affect the public good. Or you can actually abuse your privilege and, and just smear people um, without any evidence whatsoever. Just say the most outrageous thing. And no one outside of parliament can sue you. And if you've misbehaved, it's up to parliament to actually punish you. Think about, for example, Joe McCarthy who in the 1950s abused 
his parliamentary privilege by smearing people by name with no evidence. Now, if you do that in a newspaper, you can get sued for libel, for defamation. But there, to repeat, that big idea, and it's discussed in Powell versus McCormick, the core idea is absolute freedom of speech and debate. You know, there, there's um, no, unlike, for example, Fox News. Fox News can be held liable if they intentionally and knowingly uh, slimed this Dominion company. But if, if that very same set of words had tumbled out of the mouths of senators and representatives on the floor of Congress, no uh, defamation suit could be brought against them in any way. They could only be punished by Congress itself. Now, of course, that, that brings up a question, a couple of questions in the case of Pence, because who's going to punish him? If you're saying, okay, he can't be punished um, for things he said then because he, you know, he, he's covered under the speech and debate clause, but he's not really subject to the same punishments uh, by Congress that other members of Congress. Now, you could argue well, he's, is, you could argue that he's subject to impeachment, but that's different from. I mean, members of Congress can't really be impeached; they could be expelled, right? No, um, so, Andy, damn, I wish I had thought that you came up with a brilliant argument for being very literalistic here, because you could. The key is in any other place; they should not be questioned in any other place. Senators actually can be expelled from the Senate and, and, and punished in other ways. Representatives can be actually ex sanctioned by the representatives, and that's what's happening to George Santos right now. And the relevant language of uh, Article 1, Section 5 is, each house may dot, 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 punish its members for disorderly behavior and with the concurrence of two-thirds expel a member. Now, since they can't do that to the vice president, you could say, oh, he shouldn't partake of this immunity because it doesn't have, because you need some substitute, some a substitute sanction, and there is that for senators and representatives, but not for vice presidents. So it's brilliant to say that's the reason for maybe saying he, he can't even invoke it, but you also identify a counter-argument, which is great. He is impeachable, and and by, you know, in a a version of the joint session that he presided over, uh, uh, House and Senate, Oh, hello, Philip. Okay, okay. And you're laughing because now you see why it actually mattered when we had that. I'm talking about my dear friend, Philip Bobbitt, because Philip Bobbitt, you know, is now tearing his hair out. And if I were in proximity, would be tearing my hair out for suggesting that Pence, an ex-officer, is subject to impeachment even now. But I believe that he is. Actually, so that would be the counter argument that you don't need ordinary adjudication to deal with a misbehaving vice president. Actually, it still can all be handled on Capitol Hill, albeit through a slightly different um, a mechanism. No, wow, Andy, that was great. I don't think anyone has gotten that far in the analysis that I've seen um, out there in public discourse. Okay, well, thank you. You heard it here first on a Marcus <laughs> Constitution from the lips of Andy Lipka.
Mm. Okay, I'm going to have to change the title. We're going to have to change the title of this uh, <laughs> this podcast, uh, Andy. So that's on. But now let me say one final thing, because I'm an intratextualist. I'm an originalist, and I think Powell versus McCormick is a great originalist opinion. I think the Warren Court was originalist. It overruled egregiously erroneous precedents again and again and again in the name of the Constitution. That's a different account of the Warren Court that you'll get elsewhere, but it's my account. And actually, Powell versus McCormick really supports it. We should put it, we'll put it up on our show notes and people can read for themselves a beautiful, a modern exemplar text history structure, originalism. Well done. Now, one final point. What's intratextualism? Well, it's m one of my neologisms. It's the idea that there are different parts of the Constitution that sometimes use similar or identical language. And you can think about one part of the Constitution, you should think about another. I'm telling our audience the very phrase, freedom of speech, which is, of course, in our First Amendment, comes from parliamentary history when it was originally about freedom of speech and debate in Parliament, from the French Palais to speak. That's where it comes from. Now, in England, Parliament is sovereign. And so that's yet another reason that no one should be able to sue uh, its members without its consent, because who are they? Uh, to prevent the, the sovereign body from deliberating uh, as it sees fit. And if anyone misbehaves, it's up to Parliament to sanction that Parliament itself. No, no one else, no one outside can't be, um, can do this, can't be questioned in any other place. Well, now in America, um, we first have this speech and debate clause immunity, and it builds actually on language in the Articles of Confederation that says stuff that happens in Congress, speech and debate is immune. That has a federalism dimension. It protects discourse in the federal body from state libel action, state defamation suits, for example. Okay. And that's true in Article One, Section Six. It prevent, it protects the federal government from being messed with by states. It also has a separation of powers function. It pr protects Congress from being intruded upon by, for example, federal courts. So it has both of those elements. But in America, ultimately, there's the recognition that here the people are sovereign, not the legislature. So we, the citizenry, should have something very closely akin to the broad freedom of speech and debate that Parliament has in England because here we're the sovereigns and we have to debate amongst ourselves. And eventually the Supreme Court comes to see that. That's New York Times versus Sullivan. It's not an absolute freedom of speech and debate as Fox News is uh, learning to its chagrin. But it's, it's very, very broad freedom of speech and debate. And maybe it's not exactly the same as the freedom of speech and debate under Article 1, Section 6 because that's for only a few people who've been elected up front, who can be thrown out of office at the back end, who can be sanctioned by the legislature itself. It's a smaller group, and so there are other mechanisms. That's not true for each and every um, one of the citizens, so it's, it's ever so slightly less absolute. But in New York Times versus Sullivan, the speech and debate clause is mentioned, and it's a great originalist opinion, in my view, that takes seriously, actually, um, New York Times is, takes seriously the Alien Sedition Act controversy as well that helps crystallize the understanding of the First Amendment. But one thing that's mentioned is, gee, if incumbents in Congress can criticize their challengers, and they can with broad immunity thanks to the speech and debate clause, elections wouldn't be so fair if challengers didn't have 
if not identical, at least comparably broad freedom of speech and debates to criticize the incumbents. So if, if, come, if incumbents can criticize challengers, challengers have comparably broad, even if not perfectly identical, freedom to criticize the incumbents themselves. And that is a move um, made in a, a great, another great Warren Court opinion, New York Times versus Sullivan. Maybe not each and every additional rule of New York Times versus Sullivan is sacrosanct, but the big idea that you have to protect political discourse, especially about government officials. That's clear and right. And New York Times, on its facts, has to be right because what it involved was basically criticism of government officialdom. Right. And that's when the people are acting as parliament is when they're discussing, you know, government action, political, you know, questions. But this intratextual point is there are interesting analogies, even if there's not perfect identity, but there are interesting connections between Article One freedom of speech and debate and Amendment One freedom of speech and debate. And that's the sort of thing that I do all the time because I try to be a constitutional holist. And, and so that's what you're getting on this podcast, uh, my kind of a distinctive take on all of these things. I mean, you could, I guess, argue that uh, you know the Senate or the House could hold hearings um, on this matter, and and if there's a question that the special counsel can't ask, they could ask it, right? Because they, they're not they're not bound by the speech and debate clause within Congress. Indeed. So, yeah, be careful what you wish for, because now the Senate's going to say, well, if you won't answer it over there, how mm -hmm. about coming over here and, and answering the same questions? Now, um, and what about the, the, this other matter of, um, you know, questions of executive privilege? Right. So glad you asked. First, where does that come from, Professor? Because uh, we're not dealing with a clause that can be read narrowly or broadly. Well, I believe that there's an unwritten constitution alongside a written one. And I wrote a whole book about that. Sometimes the unwritten constitution adds to the written. It says, for example, the written says there are unenumerated rights, non-textual rights in the Ninth Amendment. And the unwritten kind of tells us in part how we find them. For example, by counting state practices, a la Glucksburg. Sometimes by reading between the lines of um, the written constitution and interpolating. Oh, it says freedom of speech. Oh, it says freedom of the press. Let's draw a line between them and say, well, obviously, private letters should also be protected, even though technically they're not oral communication speech and they're not the product of a printing press. When they said freedom of the press, they didn't mean a media entity, an organization, an institution. They meant actually a physical printing press. And a letter isn't the product of a printing press. It's not a product of oral speech. So one way to find unenumerated rights is um, reading between the lines. It's, it's unwritten but implicit. Another way is to, to count state practices, for example. What other things that are in addition to the written constitution are part of our unwritten? Concepts like separation of powers, checks and balances, the rule of law, federalism. The idea, um, for example, that a rule of law, no man is a judge in his own case. Oh, but if that's part of the unwritten constitution, in at least one respect, I claim the unwritten constitution actually not that doesn't just mean something in addition to the written, it means the opposite of the written. Because the written says that, here's the question, who presides at Kamala Harris's impeachment trial if she were impeached? 
and the text, if you fed it into an AI machine, would say Kamala Harris. Because the text in English says, the Senate tries all impeachments. It does. And it says the vice president presides over the Senate. It does. And it says there are two exceptions. When the president's impeached, the chief justice presides. But in my hypothetical, it's the vice president. And it says when the vice president isn't there, isn't present, um, the Senate president pro tem presides. But in my hypothetical, she's there. She's being, she's the impeachment defendant and she asks for the gavel, please. That can't be right. She can't be given the gavel because there's this basic idea that no person can be a judge in his own case. It goes all the way back to Roman antiquity. It's in Blackstone. The framers of the Constitution were surely aware of it. That's how I begin my book, America's Unwritten Constitution, because if I'm right about that, oh my God, I've just sawn a lady in half before your eyes because I'm showing you the Constitution, at least in this one little instance, means the opposite of what it seems to mean in English. Uh, so, so it turns out that, because uh, here's another thing the Constitution doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what the rules of interpretation of the Constitution are. And you say, well, the rules are the rules of, of English, of course. No, they're not, because in English, she presides, but not in law, okay? Because there are additional legal rules. And even if there had been legal rules of interpretation of the Constitution, would there be rules for interpreting those rules of interpretation? And even if, if there were rules for interpreting the rules of interpretation, then there's, what, how do we interpret the rules for interpreting the rules for interpreting the rules? And it's an infinite regress. So we need an unwritten constitution to complete the written one. I believe in that. I think there are implicit powers of government, like the power to incorporate a bank. John Marshall says emphatically in McCulloch twice, Constitution doesn't explicitly say bank or corporation. I think there are implicit limits on what government can, can, can do that aren't all specified, unenumerated rights, implicit limits on states. States can't tax federal instrumentalities, even though the Constitution doesn't say so in an explicit clause, but Marshall says so. So now this was all a long wind-up for the following pitch. I think there is such a thing as executive privilege. The Constitution doesn't say so in so many words, but I think it's part of the structure of our document. Case law uh, supports me on this, so where am I getting it from? I would start with the text as a whole, the system, and I told you each branch kind of has its own space to do its own thing, and Article 2 says the executive power shall be vested in a president, and it doesn't itemize all the, ex uh, the components of executive power. It tells us some things, that presidents can do that are part of their job description. It talks about pardons and talks about taking care that the laws be faithfully executed. And it, it talks about the power to get opinions in writing from the various heads of departments and the power to receive ambassadors. And, to, and it talks about giving Congress information from time to time on the State of the Union. It itemizes certain things, but not everything is listed. Here's one thing that isn't listed, for example. doesn't quite say that there's a power to fire cabinet officers at will, but there is. It's a component of executive power. doesn't quite say that when Senate is, the Congress is in session, the president has to be able to suspend habeas corpus because no, uh, you know, no one else is around, but the president can do that. Kings of England cannot do that. But presidents can, in part because presidents are elected up front and are impeachable at the back end. That's not true of kings of England. So there are implicit presidential powers. It doesn't say in so many words the president can, can recognize Taiwan tomorrow if he wants to, just as an earlier pre, 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 president, Jimmy Carter, unrecognized 
Taiwan um, way back when, doesn't say that a president has the power to issue proclamations of foreign policy like the Neutrality Proclamation. There are lots of implicit presidential authorities that are 9-0 in the Supreme Court. Now here's the argument for executive privilege. Executive, um, in order to do his job properly, the president needs some confidential space to do some confidential things. You need to pick the next justice on the Supreme Court, the next attorney general, some judge. Well, you're going to have to actually get some background information. And some of that's going to be very sensitive stuff. So you're going to need to find out, well, the judge is clean, but the judge has a brother-in-law that's mobbed up or that has been involved in these shady transactions. Well, you need to know that before you make your next nomination to be attorney general of the United States, the head of the Justice Department, or the Supreme Court justice, or what have you. And you can't do your job. If anyone at any time can just subpoena that um, information, uh, which might be politically very juicy, you can't let states, in effect, interfere with national policy. You, can't, you shouldn't really let other branches of government interfere with core executive functions like nominating people for, for sensitive positions. I begin with the idea that there's some presumptive privilege of a certain sort, and let me analogize it other things that are akin to it. The basic privilege of Supreme Court justices to, to discuss things in confidence. And that's the Dobbs leak. You can't float ideas back and forth, and um, which is your job if that's all going to be on the, the nightly news the next day. And that's why the Dobbs leak was so egregious. Now, we talked about uh, the Philadelphia Convention met in secret. Um, juries meet in secrecy. Now we talk about, and it's a nice question, when should the secrecy lapse? We had a previous episode on how the Philadelphia Convention secrecy lapsed at the end of the convention. That's not true for the justices themselves. They, they go to their graves often with sealed lips. But if juries meet confidentially and not on television, and that's true of justices, I think that there needs to be a space for proper deliberate executive deliberations indeed if you read the federalist papers the word secrecy is one of three or four or five key words to describe the nature of executive power uh, energy vigor secrecy dispatch these are the basic attributes of executive power because what do executives do they do espionage and you know a national security a preparation which must often needs be in secret. They, again, they're, they're doing appointments which are very, very sensitive personnel issues. They're deciding whether to fire someone. And again, suppose they decide not to fire someone, but they still need to hear the argument about what that person has done uh, in the executive branch. And, and that's very sensitive personnel map information. So there is executive privilege. Okay, I just made a set of structural arguments. George Washington claimed executive privilege early on when James Madison and members of the House wanted to get some papers about various treaty negotiations involving the Jay Treaty. Washington said, none of your business, this is pretty sensitive, unless you want to impeach me. And if so, then it is your business, but go ahead, use the I word, and I'll hand them over. Just say the I word, but if you're not going to say the I word, you know, you guys, it's, you're not the Senate, you're not approving the treaty, you actually don't have a need to know. So he, George, this was George Washington against James Madison, and it was a big stare down. And shortly after that, 
Washington breaks all communication with Madison and Jefferson, and they never actually exchange letters again. Very interesting stuff. So I made a structural argument. Now I just made a, a historical argument that early on, the person for whom Article 2 was created, the person from the Constitution was created, George Washington, took the position that in certain situations there was executive privilege. This is discussed in The Words That Made Us, by the way, and in an earlier book, America's Unwritten Constitution. Here's now a third point. In Marbury versus Madison itself, the Supreme Court recognizes in passing executive privilege. One of the people who was called to testify is the Attorney General of the United States, and he says, some of the things that the President of the United States discussed with me were discussed in confidence. And John Marshall, former Secretary of State, former cabinet officer, says, we will not ask you about any confidential communications you have with the President of the United States. So that's very, that's Marbury. It's part of Marbury that almost no judge or justice knows about, but I promise you it's in there if you read the whole opinion. Now, you mentioned the Nixon tapes case. The Nixon tapes case does recognize presumptive executive privilege, but then it says there are limitations and exceptions. Now, way back when I wrote an account of the Nixon tapes case in an article that we'll put up on the website. It's called Nixon's Shadow, saying the Nixon tapes case was completely right on the facts, but it didn't make the best argument. Here's what I, what Nixon tapes case said is, well, there's presumptive privilege, but it's very, of uh, the executive, but it's very easily overcome by a specific need for information. I said, no, that's not much of a privilege. There should be much stronger privilege than that. It should be strong, kind of like attorney-client, like priest-penitent, like doctor-patient. And Andy, we're going to talk about those privileges in just a minute. You're a doctor. This is really interesting. We can talk about some of these other privileges. It should be pretty strong, I say, because honest presidents need to actually have this deliberative space in their own building to, to do their job. But all the privileges, of course, yield in one situation. I wrote way back when. And I if other people were saying it before, yours truly, I'd like to know who they are because they weren't quite. This is what I said, and I'm telling the audience this because this is now what courts are doing. I'm My ideas way back when are beginning to uh, become a standard way of thinking about the issue, and I'm happy for that. I said, here's why the Nixon tapes case was easily and obvious and rightly decided. Nixon, to remind everyone, was not a criminal defendant. He merely was, in effect, a witness who was being subpoenaed. The people who were criminal defendants were his inner circle, his former attorney general, John Mitchell, form, former attorney general of the United States. The head of the Justice Department was a crook, and he was being prosecuted. And so was the domestic policy advisor, and so was the chief of staff. These are the people who saw President Richard Nixon first thing in the morning and the last thing in the evening, Haldeman. Ehrlichman, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman. These were, in, in Bob Woodward's phrase, you know, and Carl Bernstein's, all the president's men. They're all crooks. They're being prosecuted by this independent prosecutor. First it was Archibald Cox, then Leon Jaworski. And these prosecutors thought that Nixon had evidence relevant to the prosecution. Tapes of conversations in the Oval Office itself. And Nixon himself is not actually being prosecuted, but this is relevant evidence, and he doesn't want to hand it over. He's like Pence saying, I don't want to give this to the, the grand jury. There's a grand jury subpoena, in effect. He says, no, 
And I say, yes, there is presumptive executive privilege, but here's why it obviously yields. There's a thing called the crime fraud exception. And where the, there's either, now this can't be circular, it has to be independent evidence without looking at the relevant material, independent evidence for believing that the subpoenaed material is actually part of an ongoing crime, well then actually it's no longer covered by, for example, attorney-client privilege or priest penitent or doctor-patient. There happened to be, for technical reasons, independent evidence to believe that Richard Nixon was the hub of an ongoing criminal conspiracy to obstruct justice with the likes of Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and others. He was at the heart of this conspiracy, and indeed the, the Oval Office was the place where this conspiracy was being hatched and headquartered, organized, and these conversations on tape are, were not merely evidence of the criminal conspiracy. They were the conspiracy itself. A criminal conspiracy actually takes place by words, like when the Don says, do the hit, or when two CEOs agree, yes, we're going to fix prices. So a conspiracy takes place through words. To repeat, the tapes here were not just merely evidence of the conspiracy. They were the thing itself under the crime fraud exception to Whatever privilege you could concoct, because the crime, crime fraud is going to be an exception to that. The tapes um, were fair game, and Nixon didn't have a leg to stand on. That's what I wrote way back when in Nixon's shadow. I promise you that's not what Warren Berger quite said um, on behalf of the unanimous Supreme Court. It was eight to nothing. Rehnquist recused himself. That's what the court said, but I said that's actually the way to make sense, the, the best way to make sense of this landmark ruling. I think Why do I, Nixon, Nixon himself was an unindicted co-conspirator, right? Probably and that's made part of the evidence, case. the independent yeah. evidence, right. you see, that mm -hmm. he was in on all this. Now, I know that was a long song and dance, but the reason I went through all of that is courts today in other situations are rejecting Trump's claims of executive privilege on crime, crime fraud exception grounds. One final thing, just like, you know, you say, well, is Pence a senator or representative? This each should debate. So I'm saying is, this is not legitimate executive conduct. So it's not covered by executive privilege. Oh, and plus, he's no longer the executive. And plus, the sitting executive actually doesn't support Trump. And plus, how does Pence get to invoke any of this? So that went, and so there might be reasons that Pence said, oh, I'm not relying on executive privilege or something. But, but if he's trying to, what he's trying to not talk about are things that Donald Trump told him way outside the ca Capitol Hill. No, I'm not saying it just to repeat. Trump is no longer president. Even if he were, this is the crime fraud exception. It's not happening anywhere near Capitol Hill. So speech and debate clause, of course, doesn't apply at all. The current executive doesn't believe in this, on the contrary. So I think Pence um, clearly loses on that. Now, I, mean, I think Andy, he's probably going to say something like to, to the effect that uh, the discussions concerned what he would do on the floor of the Senate. And that's so, not good enough. So that's and not that's not going to be covered. That's what that's I was getting at asking and, you before. And, ev and mm -hmm. even if it were, there would be the crime fraud exception to the speech right. and debate clause, you know, read broadly. Um, now, Andy, you and I, I'm hoping now, are going to talk about at least two things. One, 
law and order episodes all about the crime fraud exception because we have talked about this offline a gazillion times you know um and its relationship to the godfather of course mm -hmm. you know the difference between being um a counselor and a consigliere and we're going to talk about doctor patient privilege and how how to think about that oh and i'll even tell you about marital privilege i'm going to tell you about some of the privileges and how to think about the crime fraud exception in those contexts the other privileges right well yeah that was a law and order episode where uh a uh, an attorney is <clears throat> is a it's it's like the bruce cutler uh scenario bruce cutler defended uh, john, john Gotti, among others and uh you know and he claimed he, he claimed that he couldn't talk about things that that were exchanged between he and his client under attorney-client privilege, and the, the court said, no, you're a part of his criminal conspiracy for various reasons, and so there was a law and order episode that tracked that, and in addition and to that, he was the, uh, the the lawyer was the law school classmate of uh, right. Sam Waterston, and uh, played, played, yeah, basketball with him. Right, and, uh, so. right, and they were friends, and yet McCoy went after even his friend because he, he, he crossed the line, because he became... So friendly with the client, he became a consigliere. Uh, criminal defense attorneys should, can have cases, but clients is a little trickier because the, here's the idea. Anything that you've done in the past, you can go to a lawyer, say, here's what I've done. The lawyer won't rat you out in, as a general proposition, but will help get you straight with the law and can help defend you for what you've done, but can't help you keep, uh, commit new ongoing crimes, including crimes of obstruction and, and cover-up. So... We want you to go to a lawyer in part because the lawyer is an officer of the court and can, can they can defend you in all sorts of ways and you can tell them things that you you know you can't you wouldn't want to tell other people and they won't rat you out but they can't help you commit ongoing crimes and one reason that we know that they won't rat you out because they say well, we won't rat you out and they say well how do I know that because if they do they'll lose their law license so they've they they have a huge investment. Um, in maintaining the rules of legal ethics, which don't even permit them as a general proposition. There are little wrinkles and exceptions, but as a general proposition, what you tell your lawyer, your lawyer cannot just turn around and tell the government. And will, on the contrary, defend you to the best that they can about things that you've done in the past, but from a law and order, not the show, but from a, a broader perspective, but from the law and order perspective, we want people to go to talk to their lawyers because we actually think lawyers in general can advise their clients. A company, for example, that may have committed some toxic torts in the past or something, that railroad company or something like that, well, the in-house counsel will learn what they did, defend them for what they've done in the past, and then put them on better procedures going forward. And who came up with these rules? And this makes lawyers very powerful in society because they know other people's secrets. They're the keepers of other people's secrets. Now, in that episode, Bruce Cutler went too far. He, he, he became part of the mob itself. He became a consigliere and not merely a counsel for their past bad acts. And there's a line in, that you know, of course, when he, he talks about how great it is to <laughs> like be in the room with these guys and, and, and they're his, his new pals. What does yeah. he say? He says, uh, I climb Macho Mountain and it feels good. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and you've seen this episode a time or two. Yes, I have. Um, it's called House Council. Okay. House Council. You see, that's the, that's the issue. Okay. Now, why do we have other... So, if you're a cynic, you say, ah, 
Attorneys made the rules. They made the rules that make attorneys powerful. They're the keepers of other people's secrets. What about doctor-patient, priest-penitent, marital, spousal? If we look at these things one by one in retrospect, sometimes they can interfere with search for truth and justice because they put certain things off limits. But from what economists call the ex-ante perspective, if you look at it you know, um, from the beginning, we want to encourage, for example, there's a broader social interest in encouraging people to tell their doctors stuff because they may have contagious diseases and the doctors need to know about that to maybe um, stop the contagion. We want people to confide in their religious advisors because we hope that most of the religious advisors will say, okay, my son, you've done this bad thing in the past. We can't change that. I hope you repent on that. And now let's Again, try to think about ways that you won't do this in the future. That's what we're actually hoping, you know, uh, various clergy folk will do. Kind of like good lawyers, they'll bless you, offer you for God's forgiveness for what you've done in the past, but they're trying to say and stop doing that going forward. There's a the traditional uh, social conservative argument about spousal privilege is we want to encourage men to confide in their wives. Men, especially on their own, can be wild, lone wolves, antisocial. If we can channel them into relationships one-on-one with women, women will calm them down, tame them down, and actually generally encourage them to stop committing these crimes because it won't be good for junior, you know, and for the kids. Let's just clarify that this is the history of the privilege, not your personal justification for it. Not at all. But if you think that, then we want to encourage Mm -hmm. people to get married, to stick with one person, to ensure their mutual insurance policy in rich uh, for for better for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer for poor, so that we, the rest of society, don't have to actually chip in as much because they're going to help each other. And we we're not expecting that very many marriages are going to be of the Bonnie and Clyde sort, going to be, you know, ongoing criminal conspiracies, you know, that not many are going to be of the Lady Macbeth and Macbeth sort where she's egging him on. So are those crime fraud exceptions, Bonnie and Clyde? That would be a really cool law school hypothetical, wouldn't it? And and I'm not going to out him, but I actually recently met someone who told me he was related to Clyde Barrow, and I thought, how cool is that? Mm Mm-hmm. So, and then, of course, there's doctor-patient, and that one, you know, is is kind of interesting. Um, You know, it's obvious why we would want to encourage people to tell their doctors the facts about what's going on with them, but but it could be embarrassing, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, you know, and things like that. And, of course, that in and of itself opens a can of worms regarding the privilege. Like, you're the doctor, and you know that so-and-so engaged in risky behavior do you tell this, you know, can you tell the other person, uh, let's say the sexual partner or something, that they're at risk? And the answer basically is no. I mean, there's there's an exception. Even if they're also your patient, you know, you might have, you know, right. they might both be your patients. Right. There's the Tarasov exception, um, but that's a little different. That's, that's where someone is imminent danger, not that they did something before that would have given, that like, you know, might have given you, you know, herpes or AIDS or whatever, but rather they, you know, you're a psychiatrist and this person is saying, yeah, I want, I'm going to go and kill this person. So then you can inform that person that, that they're in danger. Um, but, uh, and in fact, you have a duty to do that. But anyway, so, so that's interesting. And then there's other interesting issues like, well, okay, the patient's sitting there 
and the family member is sitting there and the patient is telling you something, well, does the third party presence, you know, get rid of that privilege? Vitiate the privilege, yes. I mean, there's really no reason that it should in that case when you think about the underlying, you know, uh, purpose of the privilege, but nevertheless it might. Or what about if it's group therapy? You can't have group therapy with two people. You know, are you going to have, you know, group therapy is not going to have doctor-patient privilege? Why not? You know, so so that, so there's a lot of complicated, but that's all for another episode, you know. <laughs> okay. So we've covered you know, two sets of arguable privileges, the speech and debate privilege or immunity and executive privilege and where they come from and how to think about them. Okay. So, so Mike Pence, you need to appear before the special counsel. Maybe there are some questions that you don't have to answer. Now, of course, I could imagine a question that could fall under executive privilege and the speech and debate clause, both possibly. Um, but, uh, you know, in that case, presumably you'd be able to get out of it with the speech and debate exception. But anyway, but he should at least appear, you said. And, yes. And probably, I mean, if you think about it, what exactly, you know, Jack Smith is not subpoenaing him because he thinks Pence acted improperly on the floor of the Senate. We, d- we don't know well, but, anything. But why but, would he be? Yeah, you know, yeah. we, we, the, the, what action so, do we think would be improper? Yeah. You know, yeah. So he's, he's subpoenaing him because he wants to know what went on with Trump. That's why. Yep. <laughs> that's his, yep. that's his, his purview. That so, seems, yeah, that, that, yeah, it seems right. So you're going to have to open your mouth, Mike Pence. <laughs> My, uh, Judge Ludwig appears to be correct, according to that analysis. Okay, and in the news has been a big case, statutory interpretation case in one sense, Biden v. Nebraska, having to do with President Biden's, I guess, response to the finding by a cabinet secretary that a COVID emergency exists and impacts on student loan repayment, and therefore he's canceling a certain amount of the student loan debt that's being challenged by various states, I guess attorneys general from various states. Um, and so lots of questions. Uh, and one of them is, you know, where does that this power come from? And uh, to do that, and some justices made arguments like Justice Kagan made an argument that it's very clear in the statute that uh, that the president has this power. But then the other question before we even get to this is, who actually can sue? You know, what what's the damage to the states, for example? Um, what well, this is a question that was asked by some of the justices. Even if we find for you, what relief are you seeking? You know, how how are you made whole from what damage? You know, and so forth. So, um, who has standing to sue here, and are the right people suing, or can anyone sue for that matter? So let me begin by. Acknowledging I'm not remotely an expert on the statutory questions at issue. And in this podcast, um, I'm very opinionated on things that I think I know very well, but I also hope that I am am careful in acknowledging things that where I'm not an expert. Now that said, I actually think I can offer a couple of constitutional perspectives on the relevant issues. So first on the merits. Here's, I think, the, the, the most interesting, from my point of view, way of thinking about it. So there's the statute 
and Elena Kagan says, if you read these seven words, you know, in a, in a certain way, and you, and, and you pull out grammatically unnecessary, because uh, it says A or B or C, she says, well, take out or, or B or C or something, just put it together. Oh, Congress was really clear that the president has sweeping power in a certain kind of emergency to cancel all the debt. And she says, you can't get clearer than that. Maybe. Okay. And if you can't get clearer than that, then she's saying, I thought we were good textualists. I thought that's what Antonin Scalia persuaded us all. On the other side, you can say, wow, Congress probably, no matter what the specific words can be read as saying, Congress did not think it was giving any president uh, um, the ability to basically throw around half a trillion dollars as he saw fit. That's trillion with a T, yes. Offline, I actually said billion and Andy corrected me. Boy, if Congress is going to give the president the power over half a tr to forgive half a trillion dollars worth of debt owed to the United States, oh, we would have expected a lot more debate and conversation about that. And so that's a reason to construe the words more narrowly than their words need to be construed. We're choosing to construe them narrowly because this is such a big deal, or in doctrine speak, a major question that we want to see extra special specificity on it because it's such a big elephant. It's not hiding in this one sentence that mouse hole that can be read a certain way, but we're, we're going to choose not to read it that way because we don't want presence lightly to be able to do things that Congress probably didn't understand that they were authorizing presence to do. That's the argument on the other side. Now, here's, and, and our brief, our amicus brief, Andy, the Amar Amar Calabresi brief begins by referencing this idea that elephants don't hide in mouse holes. Here's the Constitution, but this is ultimately a question of what the statute means. If the statute authorized it, it can. If it didn't, then it didn't. So what's the constitutional um, angle? And, and, and people talk about Biden acting unconstitutionally, but what they're really saying is if he went beyond the statute to that extent, he didn't have any authority to do it, and therefore he's acting on his own, and that's unconstitutional or something. But the constitutional issue is really just derivative of the simple statutory interpretation question. Here's my contribution to the thing. And it builds on an idea that Vic Amar wrote in an article 15 years ago, called Indirect Effects of Direct Election. If, you re if there's any ambiguity in a, statu a congressional statute, if you read it in a pro-presidential way and you're, you, you were mistaken, here's the problem. Congress can't easily claw it back because when it passes the repeal, the president vetoes that repeal. Contrarywise, if Congress, if you read the statute too narrowly, and Congress really did mean to give the president a certain power, but you deny that, well, Congress presumably can, going forward, give the president that power and he'll happily sign that bill. So the asymmetry of the veto here is a very interesting possible structural factor to be considered, and people haven't quite phrased it that way. That's just one structural constitutional point that the president, you see, is not merely an executive who does things, who enforces laws. He's also part of the lawmaking process with the veto, a big part of the lawmaking process, and that should be factored into the analysis. And that insight that I just have offered 
builds on something that Vicamar said way back when, when he was writing about a thing called the non-delegation doctrine. So big shout out to him for seeing the relevance of the veto to the non-delegation issue, which is not often seen. And on the standing question? Who can sue? I don't love a world in which massive illegality occurs and it can't get to court in general. I, so way back when, I wrote my first article as a law professor about how states can sometimes actually help prevent federal lawlessness the same way that the federal government can help sometimes protect against state illegality. So here's, it was an article called The Sovereignty and Federalism. Our audience has heard me mention it before. I'm proud of it. It's my first big piece written as a law professor. The Supreme Court has cited it on multiple occasions. It's among academics, one of the 80 or so most cited law review articles of all time. So you're hearing in my voice real pride that I came up with it. it has a bunch of ideas. Here are several of them, and they're connected. I say, gee, sovereignty in America is ultimately popular sovereignty. It shouldn't be governmental sovereignty. Governments should actually, they're, they're our agents, our servants. So I hate the idea of sovereign immunity, that the, a government can basically violate your constitutional rights and get away with it. I don't, and, and, and you have no recourse or remedy. I don't like state sovereign immunity, and so the liberals say hooray for that on the court, but I also don't like federal sovereign immunity, and the liberals sometimes are, are quiet about that. And the conservatives say, gee, if the federal government is immune when it does something, you know, you're not being very respectful if you hold states liable when they do the basically the same thing, and they've got a point, okay? So to repeat, the, even the liberals on the court have not been great on federal sovereign immunity issues. And I don't like sovereign immunity. I think when the government has misbehaved, we should have full remedies. I don't like various other police uh, immunities and the like. Qualified immunities that the court created, they created them at the same time that they were making up the exclusionary rule, which helps guilty people. They were limiting the ability of innocent people to recover fully when the government has misbehaved. And so this was an article that basically said we should get rid of these immunities, sovereign immunity and police immunities of various sorts. If they acted constitutionally, fine. But if they didn't, they should pay. And if the government was telling them to, um, what to do, then the government should indemnify them. This is relevant today, Andy, because the Biden police reform bill that he mentioned in the State of the Union was actually getting rid of some of these immunities, which I've argued for the longest time. This is in the wake of the, the Memphis atrocity. And I have actually conservatives, activist conservatives and conservatives on the court who are beginning to say the same thing. Clarence Thomas is asking questions about qualified immunity. So is Neil Gorsuch on the conservative wing of the court in the academy. Will Bode, whose name has been mentioned many times on this podcast, has raised questions about this and has written about it. There are other conservative litigating organizations. So if we're going to get rid of sovereign immunity and qualified immunity, that would, that would be good for victims of government lawlessness. Here's a third idea that would be good for victims of government lawlessness. Make it easier to, to, to have standing, to get into court. So if I'm saying states shouldn't be immune when they misbehave, people say, well, you just don't believe in federalism. I say, actually, I do. 
I believe the federal government should be held to the same standards. And here's my vision of, of federalism. The piece is called of sovereignty and federalism. Instead of letting states off the hook and their employees when they do bad things, let's have a different vision that states can actually help citizens recover when the federal government has misbehaved. That's you know a different vision of state sovereignty in which the states and the federal government kind of compete against each other to protect citizens' rights. So how might that work? This is the last chunk of the article. I said, let's take, for example, habeas corpus. The Constitution says the writ of habeas corpus can't be suspended, absent well, cases of rebellion and, and public necessity. Okay, but what habeas was on the books against federal officialdom when the Constitution was adopted? Because there are no federal statutes yet. Well, it's actually a state remedy of habeas corpus, in fact. When the federal government... Now, eventually, maybe that writ can be enforced, a writ of habeas corpus, in a federal court. I'm getting into a set of cases called Erie, but it's state law that gets you into federal court. If the federal government grabs you illegally, it's a state remedy, a state writ called habeas corpus that actually gives you standing, so to speak, that gets you into court. Now, what happens if they rough you up and beat you up? Let's imagine that they don't kill you, but they just beat you within an inch of your life. These are federal officials and you want to sue, you think it's an unreasonable search or seizure. For the first 150 years, what law got you into court? State trespass law, state property law. The, the federal officials in the hypothetical went um, onto your land, broke into your house, touched your person. Those are state law trespasses. State trespass law gave you standing to litigate against the federal government. Suppose the federal government grabs your property without compensation. What law can actually help you get compensation? Because the Fifth Amendment promises that private property will not be taken for public use without just compensation. But what law enables you to get into court to have standing, even to get into a federal court? It's state property law. Now, if you're with me thus far, I say, oh, we could take that a step further. States could actually pass all sorts of broad laws enabling individuals or maybe the state itself to come to court to challenge federal illegality. Here's one footnote in the article. In footnote 337, here's what I say. Many have noted that Congress can typically confer Article 3 standing by creating statutory rights whose violation may be prosecuted in federal court sites. It is less noted, that, e but equally true, that state legislatures can likewise confer standing. This way of thinking about standing might require re-examination of the holdings of, and they mentioned two cases, Massachusetts v. Mellon from 1923 and a, a case called Doremus from 1952. So what I was saying way back when is that there might be ways for states to create standing to litigate issues of federal illegality. Now, I was talking about states passing laws, but those who have listened to the podcast know that I think that states can pass laws, but actually states can also uh, can pass in, in their legislature statutes, but state courts can actually do things through common law. And that was a, a central part of our eerie argument in the ISL brief. A state executives actually may have some ability to do that. That's ultimately a matter for states to decide, not for the U.S. Supreme Court, perhaps. And here's the deep structural idea. Who's really harmed 
when, if, imagine just for the sake of argument that Biden acted illegally, whose rights were violated? Well, if he acted illegally, he basically made a law on his own that hadn't been properly made by Congress. So if that's how you think, he circumvented the Senate of the United States. And if you think that, you think, well, the Senate of the United States is a palladium for states' rights. He circumvented a certain kinds of kind of states' rights provision, and states maybe are in a position to object to that sort of thing. They, um, they might not be the only um, uh, entity that was constitutionally um, uh, adversely affected by that, but presidential lawmaking, you could say, actually circumvents one of the, and this is a famous law phrase, political safeguards of federalism embodied by the Senate, and therefore who should have a, a, a right to complain in court? Well, maybe states can. First of all, why the Senate, not just not and not the Senate and the House, if because, it's lawmaking? Um, the the, the um, framers of the Constitution presented the Senate as the place for states' rights, in particular. Yeah, because they were read, appointed. Read the they were appointed read, by state legislatures. That's not true read the anymore. But even thereafter, um, again, you sh this is an article by Herbert Wexler. To me, the Senate doesn't is not a platform for states' rights. It's much it, less so than um, post Seventeenth Amendment. That's a very nice structural argument on the other side. But in any event, what states are trying to do here is broadly speaking in line with my thought in this article that one of the roles that state governments can play is to facilitate federal adjudication of arguable illegal conduct by the federal government. And in the doctrine, there is this idea that there's special solicitude for state standing, for state litigants. It's a case called Massachusetts versus EPA, and it is a case that was decided after of sovereignty and federalism and by a set of justices who in other cases have cited of sovereignty and federalism for broadly similar points. So what's the what's the boundary? I mean, can can states just any any executive action they don't like, they can file suit and say that uh, you know you've you've overstepped or you know or whatever. Um, well, that, that you know there are issues of state constitutional law to be decided by the state judiciary itself. Andy, and and I think here we'll close. One really interesting idea is there are all sorts of possible harms and consequences that common law might not recognize, but that new kinds of statutes can. So I just mentioned earlier that 200 years ago, state law of trespass basically protected Fourth Amendment-like interests against unreasonable searches and seizures. If there's an unreasonable search or seizure, it's going to typically happen through something that also involves a state law trespass. But now we have new technology. You can have a wiretap that maybe technically doesn't involve a physical trespass. You can have a ray gun. You can have all sorts of surveillance technology. And so courts basically have come up with new doctrines that you don't have to have a state law trespass in order to litigate a Fourth Amendment violation. Now let's take, for example, self-driving cars, which Matthew is interested in. In the old days, maybe unless a car actually hit you, there was no trespass that was committed. It might even be the case if a car came close to you, you swerved to avoid it, and you hit a tree, 
that it, I'm not even sure that, that necessarily you could sue because, they, again, they may not have committed any trespass against you if they didn't touch you in any way. Maybe not about that, but surely you probably wouldn't have been able to sue a common law just because a drunk driver got on the road and probabilistically threatened all sorts of, of other um, individuals and, and vehicles. But now new laws come uh, on stream recognizing new kinds of legal interests. I don't have to wait to get actually physically touched. Someone who uh, merely imposes a risk or a threat, a probabilistic threat, is in some ways violating my, my well-being and, and, and sense of harmony. And so there are all sorts of new laws that come on the books recognizing new kinds of legal interests. And what's, what we're seeing in this litigation, this student loan litigation, is whether states can kind of recognize all sorts of interests that might not be interests at common law, but that are interests in, in that state, thanks to their new legal regime. That's what would the, an example of that, such an interest be in this case? That because of this student loan forgiveness, the causal chain is certain state organizations that were involved in processing loans are actually going to be out of, have less revenue, and they're going to not be able to contribute as much to the Missouri coffers. There was some, a special Missouri entity, and it was involved in administering certain loans. The Biden program is going to mean less money for that entity, which is going to mean, mean less money for the student for the, the state coffers, which is a little bit like, okay, you didn't hit me, but you went on the road and you imposed a risk on me and that risk is enough. Recognize all sorts of different kinds of causal chains than the ones that were recognized at common law. I'm very interested in what are the boundaries of this? What, what would be going too far? Um, and because you could see a situation where, you know, you're frustrated as a citizen, you try to, you know, you want to get a federal law passed, it's passed, and then it's not really passed, because it still has to, you know, withstand every state that didn't like it in the first place and voted against it, you know, in the, in the you know, their senators voted against it or something like that, they lost, but then they're going around, they're suing, and, you know, et cetera. So it's, ah, but here's the key. And all this is, the only thing that we're talking about is just getting into court. At the mm -hmm. end of the day, the court is going to have to decide whether the president acted legally. And so I tend to err on the side of, for the reasons, Andy, we talked about earlier, giving the court an opportunity to say what the law is. And if I thought that was true in, in situations involving mootness, you're going to see it's the same. Akil is going to say, well, if the court on the merits is getting things wrong, if they're declaring something illegal that really wasn't illegal, that Congress had already authorized it. If Elena Kagan said, like, you're, this isn't a major question doctrine, uh, a major question doctrine that you're articulating. It's like, you have to say it twice, you know, doctrine, because she says, we already said it once, but that's on the merit. So one big limit, Andy, is all we're talking about is just being able to get the, get the attention of the Supreme Court so that it can decide the proper question, did the government act legally or illegally? Yes, and of course, standing is that you don't get thrown out, but you also don't get thrown in because the court may not grant cert, you know, and, and they only take a few cases, and, you know, so, so there are limitations nevertheless. But, you know. I wish I had thought of that. Andy, you're answering your own question. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so we're back, or that is, Akil is back from his root canal, and uh, now with the relief provided by modern dental science, um, 
he's going to uh, give us a little recap or overview of these questions of standing uh, without uh, feeling like he's got to rush out of that dental chair as soon as possible. Right, and Andy, this is just, you know, especially for you, but maybe for our audience too, nothing to fear. Um, but fear itself, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, it didn't hurt a bit. So because okay. I, I know I know Andy, it's something that you are now looking forward to and is now in my rearview mirror. Uh, but I just wanted to just for the last few minutes of our of our previous session, I kind of rushed through just a bit the analysis, and you had a couple of good questions that I don't think I did justice to. So just to summarize and conclude on the standing issue in this Biden v. Nebraska case, there are really two different theories. One is just kind of a straight up economic harm theory. This half trillion dollar package seems like just a windfall, a bonus to all sorts of people who's harmed economically. And Missouri is saying, we're harmed economically. It's a little bit indirect, but here's how we are because there's a, an entity that uh, was gonna be involved in processing these loans that's gonna make less money than it otherwise would have, and that's going to affect state coffers. So that's just a standard kind of argument for why a person or an entity might have standing just because of economic consequences. And, and the question is whether the economic consequences are crisp and clean enough and closely enough connected to the defendant's alleged illegality and cognized, recognized by law. And the states are saying, well, we recognize that interest in a way, and this should be good enough. Um, it's good enough for us, and we're a lawmaking entity, and that's one theory. Before um, you go to the next uh, theory, Akil, you're saying Missouri. Isn't the case is Biden versus Nebraska, right? There are six states right. okay. that are actually suing, and okay. one of them is Missouri, um, and one of them is Nebraska. Actually, so glad you asked because I've done very little research on this, but but here's what I can tell you: the states, according to a brief that I've read, are Nebraska, Missouri, or Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa. Kansas and South Carolina. So that's, I think, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yes, that's six. So those are the six states. So Missouri in particular is focusing on this economic angle. Now, there's a second and distinct theory from the economic harm. Let's call it the legislative displacement theory. It's more purely a structural theory of the Constitution. And the argument goes as follows. When a president on his own makes law and unconstitutionally, illegally so, he is displacing the ordinary process of bicameralism and presentment. This is a, an argument that some of our audience may uh, recognize as akin to the Chada case, the legislative veto case, but okay. So we're having Biden law instead of Constitution rock law, just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill and you have to go through the House and the Senate and then be presented to the president and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so if that's true, that he, let's just assume for the sake of argument that this was illegal. Standing typically assumes that what the defendant did was illegal, but not everyone can legally complain about it. Not everyone has standing. So assuming what Biden did was illegal, whose rights were prejudiced um, or violated thereby? From a structural point of view, a legislative displacement point of view, well, okay, so there's this 
it should have been House, Senate, President. Well, the, the President um, isn't really compromised. He, he, he's, he's there in the ordinary lawmaking process. In fact, he has a little bit more power here because in the ordinary la lawmaking process, he could be overridden. And, and in any event, he's not going to com be complaining about what he did. So that leaves the House and the Senate. Now, individual House members and individual Senate members may feel aggrieved, but you, you see, um, they might have been the minority in those two chambers, and unless the House as a body brings a lawsuit, or Senate as a body brings a lawsuit, the Supreme Court might look askance. And when this lawsuit was initiated, remember Biden's party, the, the Democrats, my party, your party, controlled the House and the Senate. And so Nancy Pelosi wasn't going to initiate this lawsuit against Joe Biden, even if she didn't like it. She's a, maybe a Democrat, first and foremost, above being Speaker. Ditto for Chuck Schumer. He is a Democrat above being Senate Majority Leader. This is what Rick Pildes and uh, uh, Daryl Levinson have called um, separation of parties as distinct from separation of powers. So so the Senate doesn't bring a um, lawsuit as such. It's still controlled by the, the Democrats, um, albeit barely. The House doesn't bring a lawsuit as such. But you could say the Senate is also a chamber that's supposed to represent states as such. Now, you rightly said, Akhil, after the 17th Amendment, state governments really aren't represented much in, in the Senate because the senators are directly elected. And I thought that was a beautiful structural point, and I, I didn't do it justice because I was rushing you know, out to my root canal. But First now person that I, ever that uh, rushes to his root canal. <laughs> so, I, well, I, no, Andy. The pain is before you get into the dental chair, and I didn't want to miss my appointment. Oh, once you're in the chair, they numb you up, and 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 you can just daydream and and think about the New York Mets or whatever it is that you want to daydream about. So I rushed out, and I didn't think I gave a satisfactory answer. Here's the best answer. The Senate, even after the 17th Amendment, is seen structurally as a palladium of states' Right. So it was designed in part to be the a part of the lawmaking process that's especially respectful of states as such. Each state is treated equally, and that's true even after the 17th Amendment. You two senators per state. Now, it's true that they're not picked by the state legislature. They're picked by the people of each state. But who would be especially compromised by this displacement? small states in particular, because the Senate's about small states, giving them um, an, an equal role. And that's the biggest differential between the bicameral process of ordinary lawmaking and, let's say, the electoral college process that picks the president. Because the electoral college actually is very weighted toward the apportionment to the House of Representatives. Some people think, I am not among them, that the Electoral College basically favors small state. Every state gets a, a, a two electoral vote bonus, a, a two Senate seat bonus, as it were. The, the number of electoral votes each state gets is its House members plus its Senate members. So every state, House, whoever small, is guaranteed at least three. It's guaranteed one for its House member and two for senators. And so some people think, oh, it, it unfairly boosts Wyoming and, and Alaska and, and Delaware and Rhode Island, these small states. That's not my view. My view is actually the big states tend to be advantaged because of, of, of winner take all. And there have only been, in fact, four small state presidents 
in all of American history. One is the current president, Joe Biden. One is Bill Clinton. The others are Zachary Taylor and Franklin Pierce. If you think the way I do, that the Electoral College actually tends to favor large states, a big state guy wins all the time at the beginning. George Washington's from the biggest state. 32 of the first 36 years of presidency goes to a Virginian that's one of the two biggest states. And, and the other biggest state is Massachusetts, and that's the, uh, the other president the first 36 years, John Adams from Massachusetts. Pennsylvania is also a, a big state, but those are the big three. And big state people are not just the presidents, they're the runners up, and they are typically the vice presidential candidates. So if you think that way, then you'd say, who's compromised by this uh, presidential lawmaking system instead of the classic bicameral and presentment, a Constitution Rock, just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill process. It's the states as such, and especially the small states. Now, what's interesting, Andy, is if you think about it that way, and you look at actually who the litigants are, four of the six are actually small states. They're Nebraska, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas. The bigger states are Missouri and kind of South Carolina. In the middle. And then the final question, Andy, you asked me as well, who speaks for those states? You see, because no longer, it's no longer displacing the state legislatures, which used to pick the senators. That was your point about the 17th Amendment. So it's really the state electorates of the small states that are kind of being displaced. And who speaks for them? Well, not utterly implausibly, the, the governors or the administrator or the uh, attorneys general, the statewide elected executive officials of that state. Those are actually the people who are bringing the lawsuit, and they're picked one person, one vote statewide, just like the senators who were being displaced, you see, even post-17th Amendment. So that's a theory, audience members, that you're not going to get anywhere else. It's a, it's a different way of looking at it. It's an America's Constitution take on the thing. And I, as I said, Andy, I don't think I did a great job right before our break because I was rushing out to the dentist chair. But, but I, I hope that actually elaborates a little bit more this a different theory standing and tries to respond to your brilliant question, does the 17th Amendment change the analysis? So I guess in the end, you're saying that the House um, is elected in a way that's somewhat comparable to the Electoral College, and therefore right. when the president acts unilaterally, you could argue that he's probably acting in a way that's more similar to how the House would act than right. to how the Senate would act. And we return to this question about whether the Supreme Court is going to give some special solicitude to states as such in its analysis. And that is what Justice Kennedy for the court wrote in the Massachusetts versus EPA case. And it does have a family resemblance to some of the things that I wrote way back when in the sovereignty and federalism, that states as such can play a distinctive role in helping to challenge in court federal illegality, that states can, in all sorts of ways, creatively confer standing on litigants. And to your, the point that you made right at the very end, just to remind everyone, that doesn't mean that the states win. That uh, just means that the Supreme Court um, gets to look at the issue and decide on the merits, the question of um, whether the government, federal government has acted legally or, or, or not. And without the states, maybe no one would be able to get into court. And I tend to think it's a good thing in general if the courts are able to, to weigh in on 
the merits. I hope they get it right, of course, when they weigh in. But that takes us back to our Moore versus Harper discussion. Okay, so there you, there you have it, audience. Everything you always wanted to know about standing, <laughs> or maybe not, but... Uh, or, or root canal. <laughs> yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs>